Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Charles Scalfani. Based in California, Charles is currently the CTO for Panoramic Software, where he and his team recently developed a system that helps U.S. military veterans file benefits claims, a process which can literally save lives. Charles has over 40 years of experience with software development and has worked on many cool projects over the years in a number of industries, which I'm looking forward to talking with him about a little bit. You can follow Charles on Twitter at cscalfani and check out his Medium blog at cscalfani.medium.com. Charles is the author of the book, Functional Programming Made Easier, a step-by-step guide. In this interview, we're going to talk about Charles's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience writing and self-publishing. So thank you, Charles, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thank you. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you grew up and how you found yourself becoming interested in computers and software and technology. Um, sure. Um, I was... Um... Uh, a physics major. I wanted to be a theoretical physicist when I was 15 and uh, I was um, in college and um, I was standing outside my calculus class and this guy came from down the hall. It's an area I didn't, I didn't really know before. I'm like, what's down that way? And he, he said, oh, that's the computer lab. I go, oh, computer. Yeah, I've heard of that. And he goes, you want to see? And I go, yeah, let's go look. And so he shows me a teletype and he shows me a three-line basic program and it was so confusing. I walked out of there and I, and I said, I will never understand computers. And the very next semester, my buddy of mine was taking a Fortran class um, and uh, he was really excited. And he said, oh, come, come, come. I go, ah, computers, nah, I'm not interested. And he said, well, no, come with me, come with me. So I will go with him to the computer lab. But this time we walked past the teletypes and we walked into another room and had CRTs. And I'm like, whoa, what are those? And uh, he said, well, those are the, the, the terminals. And I'm like, wow, it's like a TV, right? And he said, well, yeah. And so we sat down and I watched him program on that. And um, I, I, I was hooked at that point. I thought this is just awesome watching him type certain things and getting a program to work because I had been programming my calculator in high school. And um, you know, I had a T, T, oh, the old TIs, those massive calculators back in the day. And um, I mean, we're talking the 70s, so they were huge. And um, uh, I, I just watched people program for that whole semester and, and basically learned how to program watching other people do it. And people would look at me like I'm a crazy person, like, what are you even doing here? You don't even have a class. And I'm just, well, I'm just interested. And I'd spent all my time in college doing that and decided that I didn't want to be a theoretical physicist anymore. I really wanted to learn programming. And I started um, programming and learning um, micro, microprocessors um, programming, um, you know, it, back then it was 6502 8-bit microprocessors, and I uh, got my first job at 19. I was professionally programming at 19. Um, can, I, and, can I just pause you there for a second? So yes. you were you were self-taught? Yes, yes, completely. And yes. how did you learn at that time? Um, I books, all books, everything was a book. There was no internet. There was not even, you know, you couldn't even go to BBS, you know, the old bulletin board systems. There was none of that. There was, it was all books. I've always been a book person. Sit down, work through a book. Uh, I were, uh, the programming, the 6502 by Rodney Zacks was the book that I learned um, microprocessor programming from. And I just sat down with that book and I went through it page after page after page until I understood that page and I went to the next page. So it was completely self-taught. And do you remember what your interview was like? So I'm thinking there you are 19, you've studied physics, but you've now trained yourself up reading books on yeah. and, and, you know, auditing classes or something. And then do you remember what your like interview was like? Well, 
sort of. I remember how I dressed and I would, and I think today, oh, I would have never dressed like that for an interview. Uh, you know, you're 19. And I had just gotten my retainer. So the whole drive to the interview, I'm like trying to sing with the radio and talk. Cause you know, when you first get a retainer, cause I got my breasts off and I got a retainer, um, you can't talk. So I'm thinking, oh, of all days I have an interview, uh, I have a retainer. Um, I don't remember what I talked about. It's one of those moments where you're so panicked that you forget everything. It's sort of like, you know, um, something bad happens. You just, it's all a blur. Um, so I do not remember um, what I talked about, but they did ask me a bunch of, you know, technical questions, but I don't remember it. That's 40 years ago. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what was the company doing that you worked for? Um, they made, um, uh, <laughs> we, we made systems. They were, it was an S100 bus system written in ZD assembly for like uh, MIT and you name any large school and they had their system in it. And it was for, um, I called it a meal control system. So you'd get these little cards with a magnetic strip on it and your meal, so your meals, uh, your meal points would be kept on that. We stored our programs on a cassette tape. So they would boot the system off a cassette and this massive Read what was called a card reader. It would, it would have also a cassette, and it would boot the S100 bus system, which had you know the eight-inch floppies, and um, and then they would just keep track of all of the card readers all over the campus, keeping track of the information in the um, uh, in each individual account. We really didn't store it on hard drives and stuff. Uh, yeah, it's a long time ago. <laughs> and was all this in California? Yes, I've only been. I grew up in California, and I've only been working in California. Oh. So, so that's sort of the beginnings of like how I started. It, it was that job was sort of my university. I worked there for two years and really got to learn um, stuff. I remember my my um, my boss walks up to me and he throws a book on my desk and he says, "This is supposed to be the next new thing. I, I want you to learn it." And I love learning, so I'm like, "Oh, great! This is awesome!" It turns out that was Kernig and Ritchie. Um, C book, right? And there literally was no other book. And there was no real compiler to be had. We used a DECUS compiler, which is the DEC user group compiler on old PDP 11. And um, I learned that way. And I just, well, I just went through the book and it literally looked like hieroglyphics when I first opened it. Cause I had come from basic and Pascal and languages like that. So when I saw a C, it was all these weird characters and things you never type on the keyboard. So for me, it was like, um, it was pretty scary, I remember, but I, I, I love those kinds of challenges, learning something. And so you worked there for two years and then you moved on to somewhere else, I imagine. Yeah, I, I've, over my 40 years, I've probably had about 18 jobs um, going from uh, different, you know, lots of, lots of small companies. I'm a more, I'm more of a small company person. I, I, I like to where I can make a big difference in the company. Uh, I like where I can wear many hats and learn, you learn a lot more that way and you can have a more positive impact on, on the business. Um, but you also, it's a very risky endeavor and I've lost my job many times. Companies have gone under because they're tiny companies. Um, the first real notable, I, I'm just going to tell you the interesting jobs I had. Um, the first real notable um, job was uh, I worked on a, I worked on the firmware for um, an audio card before PCs had audio cards. And we, um, and basically I debugged my code with a dual trace oscilloscope because I had nothing else. There was no tools. I had, I was burning all of my code into this raw, into e, e, you know, EROM. 
um, or EEROM. And uh, I would put my, I put the card together, I put the oscilloscope and my program got to a certain point, it would just output to a port and sit in a loop. And I could see the signal on the oscilloscope knowing, oh, my program got here. And um, uh, we took, we were gonna sell this card to um, uh, Sony Interactive at the time, we were gonna show it to them. And so we made this little demo where we took an album and we put some, uh, we put some cuts on there and we were gonna play them on, on using this new audio card. And we had touchscreen technology back then. I mean, this is like 1984 maybe. Um, and I, as I'm demoing it for the company, this demo that we put together for them, um, demonstrating the card and everything, I realized, wait a minute, this is, we should take this thing to Tower Records and this would be a great thing for people to listen to albums before they buy it. So long story short, uh, by 1985, 86, we had a bunch of record companies putting um, music on, on our system. It's called the Music Sampler. And it was in 20 or more uh, Tower Record stores um, all over the country. We were talking, I'd figured out how to take a, a laser disc player that could play music videos. And um, I did a little bit of hardware hacking um, and got it so that we could meld digital, this is like, like I said, 86, digital and video on the same screen so that um, we could have music videos and we we're talking to MTV. And then in October of 87, the stock market crashed and that was the end of the company. It just decimated our company. Oh my, that's that's really interesting that that's how that went went under because I mean that yep. just just the, the technology you're describing for those listening who might not be old enough to remember like that would have been <laughs> a magical thing to walk into a record store and to be able to a use a touchscreen thing but b choose from a variety of you know songs and in, in, and especially videos to watch and get a sample from because in those days like well it, it specifically if you wanted to watch a music video you basically had to wait for it to come on MTV. Yep, uh, yep and, exactly and it was, right. Them, it was up to them what you got to watch, you know, um, and uh, and um, and also the idea of being able to sample music, right? If you didn't hear it on the radio or at a friend's place, yep. you you walk into a record store, everything's sealed up in its in its in its box basically, and you can't take them out and listen to them. Uh, that's just yeah. not the way things work. So this that would have been a really amazing technology, and I'm sorry to hear that it was. Uh, oh, so disappointed. External so accident that brought the whole yeah. thing down. It was. Um, uh, it was sad too because it, we had we had heard from RCA Records that we had given them so we used to collect statistics. So at the end, when you heard a song, we had a little happy face, uh, a frowny face, and sort of a you know don't care face. And then you could touch the screen to say what you thought about the the, the uh, music. And they told us um, that DJ and Jazzy Jeff, I don't remember if you remember those guys, right? DJ and Jazzy Jeff, they, uh, we were able to tell them that that was gonna be a hit record a month before all of their other information systems could tell them because we were right there and we were collecting the data from people who were listening to it in the stores. So they didn't have to wait for their, for their purchasing data to come through. Um, so yeah, it was very, very disappointing. I'm like, and so like a year later, I called one of the guys I used to work with. I'm like, what happened? We were supposed to be millionaires, <laughs> you know? So I've had many um, times of like those disappointing times. Um, fast forward to um, uh, working in Hollywood. That was, that was a lot of fun. I, I spent about, I don't know, 10 years working in, in animation and um, in that area. I worked for Metrolite Studios, which was um, uh, an, a, you know, they won an Academy Award and a, a, an Emmy for their work in 3D um, animation. And uh, I, I programmed the 
Annie system, which was one of the very early uh, digital ink and paint systems for animation. And then that was sold to a CD-ROM company because that was during the time of CD-ROM games. And then we went off and, I mean, a bunch of people who worked there went off and started on company Classics Entertainment. Yeah, just if I could pause you there for a second. So yeah, this yeah. Annie project was very interesting and it was, I think it was used for Ren and Stimpy and things like that. And could you talk a little bit about what a digital ink and paint system is? Oh yeah, sure. I apologize. I, no, no, that's fine. I'll do that. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so basically you get paper, right, that the animator has drawn on and you put it onto a, a slightly modified scanner. And what we would do is we'd, the, if, you, if you've ever seen a, um, an animator work or an animation table, it's a, it's a backlit piece of glass and they have, um, they have this pegboard and it has, a, um, it has a slot on both ends for, you know, for holes and a, round, and a round slot in the middle. So the paper fits over these pegs and they draw Right? And that's how they can register it. So each drawing is registered because of these peg holes. So the next piece of paper you put on is registered that way. Well, we had to scan it and also register those. So we modified our scanners and we had people who did scanning. And then once it was in the computer, um, then a digital, they, you know, digital ink of paint, like the old days, they'd paint on the back of cells. Um, this was, you basically did a, a flood fill paint. So you just took the color with your, we had, back in those days, we had tablets and nobody was using tablets. We, we even used Wacom tablets, which are, are now the industry standard, but back then we used every type. Um, and you just touch with your pen on the color and then you would touch on the area and it would flood fill uh, that color. And so we could do that pretty quickly. And, um, and then um, once that was done, we, um, we, uh, we had scanned in the backgrounds. Um, this is back when Photoshop was like version three or four um, it's pretty old, um, but we used Photoshop and um, we would piece the, because we had the scanner to just do the backgrounds was $16,000 and it, it, you know, today we could get it for, you know, a few hundred bucks, but back then everything was super expensive and we would scan the backgrounds and we'd piece them together because they were long sometimes. So if you ever watch cartoon and you like, you watch a character walk across the screen, you're going to see that they're going to walk quite a ways and then it'll start repeating itself like you know the Flintstones did that and um but we had to scan that and in pieces because the scanner wasn't big enough I think it was 16 inches only and because they're used to just having this big crank and they could just crank this massive background under the camera in the old days so we had to piece that stuff together so we had to digitally pieced in there and then just all the software had to use the camera movements and things and this was in the day where Technology was so bad that we had to, we bought cards from AT&T TrueVision and they were $15,000 for these process or for these, for these um, graphics cards, $15,000 per workstation. And um, it got to the point, this is when we had 286s and 386s, okay, for PCs. Then it got to the point, I think when the 386 or the 486 came out that those cards were sl too slow and we started doing more on the PC and less on the graphics card. So um, this is the, you know, and we'd watch like a, a screen render, you know, a single frame render in front of your eyes. It would just, you could count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, as it just painted down the screen as we're rendering it. So the technology was just in its absolute infancy. I and mean, what we can do today is, is literally magic. Can you give us a year when this was going on? Just so we, that was, things, things changed so fast, actually knowing when it was. Yes, that was 90, I don't remember what it, it was. It was around, it was right before the LA riots. So it was 94. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was before that. So we were doing, um, I'm, you know, we were doing stuff about that time. 
uh, and the technology wasn't like like it is today, where it just leaps and bounds over that. But yeah, so everything was complicated and and slow and expensive, but we were doing it. And ninety three, that would have been right around the sort of popularity of or popularization of the World Wide Web, right? Um, no, I mean, I really let me think. Where was I? Yeah, it was after that when we spun off um, Classics Entertainment to do our to do pretty much the same thing. We spun off Classics Entertainment, and it was about then where the internet was becoming more popular. And I'm like, I, I you know, I, I, I always pride myself in being very good about telling what the new technologies are going to be. Um, and I just missed it completely on the internet. I'm like, internet, what is that? That's crazy. I'm like, I don't need that. I go, I got CompuServe or whatever I was using at the time. And um, uh, yeah, so it was a, that was after probably, we were just getting there at that point. And then we, so we did Ren and Stimpy and we did work for Disney. We did work for Universal Studios, um, uh, Shelley Duvall's Bedtime Stories. I think that was Universal. I can't remember, it's like I said, it's been too long. Um, we did um, Beavis and but some Beavis and Butthead episodes. And there were, other, there were other companies in town that were doing similar work. And, um, uh, and then there was Disney, right? And they had their cap system. I, I'm sure they don't have that anymore. But at the time, there weren't that many systems that could do digital income pain. So I was on another time I was, I felt pretty lucky to, to be on that cutting edge. And so that was exciting. Yeah. And, um, and so you said you struck it on your own and you started your own company and you've, you've had, uh, you know, ups and downs and things like that. Um, and oh yeah, we went uh, under. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so, um, you ended up, uh, I mean, let's, you know, we'll leap ahead just in the interest of time, but, um, sure. uh, you, you, you ended up, uh, where you are now as CTO for Panoramic Software. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kind of work you guys do. I mentioned a, a recent product that you mentioned in your LeanPub bio yes. uh, when yeah. I was doing the introduction. And if you could maybe talk a little bit about that work, because things with um, the technology and the Veterans Affairs Office and something like that is actually a kind of part of popular understanding because it's often, or not so much recently, but it, there was a time when it was actually quite common to be in the news where like people can't process forms and stuff like that. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the work you've done within that context. Yeah, sure. Um, that's probably the one thing that I'm like very proud of, of, of the work. You know, it's not it's as glamorous as my early work where, you know, you're doing music and you're doing animation and commercials and stuff like that. That's sparkly and glamorous and stuff. And I got over that at some point. I realized that that's fun. And those are things that I could turn into hobbies, but it's really a difficult business to be in. So I kind of got into business stuff, doing business stuff. And I mean, honestly, the tech, the, the, for me, the technology doesn't matter. I mean, the, the product doesn't matter so much as the technology and how you do it, right? But this was something that I never realized, you know, I'm doing this work and stuff. And it really took someone who worked with veterans who wound up working with us to really open my eyes to um, how she used our old legacy system, which I wasn't involved in, but, um, uh, and she's actually felt that she's, there are times she's actually gotten vets off the streets and saved their lives. So that really hit me and it changed my whole perspective on what we were doing. Before it was just a technology thing, but to have that added, uh, you know, uh, knowledge that you are make you're helping people make a huge difference in people's lives, and it's always I mean I grew up during Vietnam, and so I I mean it's always bothered me the, the you know the movie Coming Home and all that really had an impact of, of like how we didn't treat our uh, soldiers uh, right, and we haven't really treated our vets well um, honestly, 
Um, doesn't mean that people don't care about them. It doesn't mean that 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 um, you know there aren't people like there. We, I work with people in the VA, and they're you know they care. They really do, and they're working hard, and they're making really big improvements. But it's just it's just so slow and so um, so so much bureaucracy and everything. It just takes time. But um, so yeah, we um, we just recently built a all all in functional programming. Um, we built a. Uh, uh, a system that uses Haskell on the back end and Elm on the front end, and um, uh, as just came out two years ago, I guess. And uh, it, it, we're slowly installing it in different places in the country. And when the pandemic hit, that was another thing. I, I, when the pandemic hit, I was frustrated because I couldn't do anything about it. Right? I'm a problem solver, and so for me, I thought, well, what can I do? And I realized I know what I can do. I can make it so people can do remote signatures of their forms. So we had a thing called Finger Ink. It's a website. You go to finger.ink and we use that. And so typically someone might be in an office with their representative who's helping them get fill out their forms to get their claims. And they would just say, okay, go on your phone, go to finger.ink and type in this six digit code. And then they turn their phone and they would sign with their finger and then it would pop up on the screen and they've just signed their document. So I created a, uh, a system so that they could get an email and from their representative who was remote from them and they could click on the link and they could go on there and log on with their social security number, see their document, right? And be able to sign it right there. And that this way they wouldn't have to come in to the office um, for you know, social distancing reasons, especially since a lot of, the, um, a lot of them are older. And so that, that was a big, exciting thing for me that, that that was my thing, like, okay, this is what I can do to help. Uh, I, I just felt like I wanted to do something. And even though it's my little corner of the world, I, I, I was happy to do it. Yeah, that's really fascinating. The, um, the adoption of technologies that reduce the number of trips that people have to take to do mm -hmm. things and, and the bureaucratic acceptance of them has mm -hmm. actually been like a really big, in my view, like kind of positive result of the pandemic. Yes. Um, I've, I've got a friend who's a surgeon and he talked about how like at the beginning they were like in his hospitals, they were like, well, we've actually really got to rethink whether people really do need to come in for personal in-person visits as much as we've been doing yeah. just yeah. routinely so far. And you know, he was part of the revolution. I mean, I'm sure you've read some articles about this too, about how like, you know, in one month there were 10, there was 10 years of progress on the use of remote technology, yes. whether it's, yes. you know, looking at, looking at, you know, you cut someone's head open last week and now you want to have them lift up the bandage gingerly and have a look underneath well instead of making them take a day off work you know maybe have to take the kids with them into town you know drive three hours and make it make an in-person visit where they might have to wait for some arbitrary amount of time and then see a, someone for five minutes if you can actually like things like you mentioned like just going to an office to do a signature or something like for some people that can actually be a huge burden um, yes. And to yes. take that away can can be really really good advancement. Well, I thought someone could be in a hospital bed, and you could hand them an iPad, and they could go to the site, see their documentation, and sign it because it might be important. And they can't get there. And it's very. It, I mean, one of the things that's really important for veterans is that they get their their claim date. It's called their claim date because they can lose thousands of dollars if they don't get that. So the, it's really critical to get that date, and so it, that may require a signature. Well, and those claim dates can be um, more complicated matters than some people think. You reminded me of a podcast I was listening to where someone was, he was handling post 9-11 claims um, mm. for, uh, you know, first responders and, and things like that. 
and there was a, the spouse of a first responder who I believe had died shortly after 9-11 was sort of insisting on moving up the date at which she could, you know, do, do something in order to right. get the settlement. And from, from a sort of surface perspective, it looked really selfish, right? She just wanted the money sooner. But mm. when he met with her, it turned out she was dying and she, she had a date, like she wasn't going to be around at the end of the month. And so she really right. needed to get it sooner. And these kinds of things can, you know, life gets in the way of, of, of red tape, you know, and yes. anything you can do to make it better is good. Um, actually, you, you gave me an opportunity a good opportunity to segue into the the next segment of the of the um, interview, and it's actually one I ne neglected to mention to you before, because um, I only well, I only started it a year and a, a bit ago, but in March 2020, I started asking people, "How's the pandemic affected you uh, personally and professionally?" And while we're coming out of it, we are still kind of in it, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how it affected you in your neck of the woods and your job. Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um, the I used to always say, and this is many years ago, if programmers can't remote work, no one can. And um, I was really surprised how many people could. My wife's been working home. She works in an office. She, um, they, she, she works in uh, your, your typical office work. You know, and go, I'm not gonna go into the details of it because that's private and all for her. Um, and um, I, I would never guess that she could operate um, remotely like that. And um, we're actually, as a bunch of programmers, getting back into our office sooner than she is. She won't go back till September. So uh, I'm really happy that people realize that, because I was always an advocate for remote work. I, 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 and with programming, I, I say, it's like a dream when you're working. You're in a dream, you're having a dream, and if somebody wait, just interrupts you in any way, shape, or form, it's like being woken up at, out of a sound sleep and you were dreaming, and they ask you some trivial question, and, and it's like, okay, it's like, oh, I was, I was in the middle of a dream. Oh, sorry, go back to sleep and finish your dream. That can never happen. You can never get back into that dream. You'll never. And so having that remote, the ability to, to work remotely and have that time where you can just ignore everybody. They can't just walk into your office or by your cube. Um, that's really great. And so for me, um, looking at, the, uh, at how the world is finally ca catching up, um, I'm always pushing technology. I'm always pushing I'm always looking for the next thing. And, and I, I, I'm a little bit more reserved than I was when I was younger. When you're younger, you think, oh, this is the next big thing. Everything's great and everything's you know, exciting and everything. And you just don't have enough experience to be able to judge it, whether it is truly a big thing or not. Um, and, um, and as I've gotten older, I've been, uh, it's easier and easier to be able to, um, to look at a new thing and see how it might fit in the world. And, being able to work remotely has always been something that I thought uh, was a was a great thing, and I'm really glad that more people see that they can do these things. Um, the I, I watched like the zooms and the uh, uh, you know we're doing this over Zoom. Um, the that technology just every it's just ubiquitous now. You know my wife wouldn't use Zoom. You know it'd be oh no it's you know it's typically people my age right. It's old people always going oh I'm too old and you know I can't do this. But then when we had to do it, people just they were able to do it. And that is probably um, one of like from a from a professional and um, technical viewpoint that uh, was probably um, one of the, the good things that came out of the pandemic. I think, and um, I hope that we um, retain that and 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 move forward with that. I I, I for me I, I and maybe this is a still a naive position, but I believe people can do so much more than they 
than they do many times. I believe just because you're old doesn't mean you can't learn. And, um, and so to see people who would normally not use that technology, use it and on an everyday basis so that they don't even think about it. Um, I, hope they, I hope they realize that this, look, you did it. You so can do this stuff. Yeah, it's uh, funny. That's that's something I could talk about forever. Um, the yeah, uh, part, part, yeah part, partly it comes from uh, your first experience of technology. So, for example, I'm just thinking about my dad, like who totally get in a car and like drive somewhere he's never been before, which is when you right. think about it, a crazy thing to do. <laughs> you know, like it's so complicated. There's people coming yeah. at you from all directions. You might be going yeah. faster than humans ever moved before. You know, uh, yeah. and you just get in and do it. But if you ask him to like use the computer. He's like, no, and, and he does, he does more now, but uh, yes. one of the reasons was like his first experience with the computer was with a very clunky, hard to use thing where you had to read a manual and maybe take a course. And um, uh, it was at the time when you could lose work if you didn't mm, save yeah, or, yes. or the power went out, maybe at the time, yeah. I think he might've been before like control Z. So there's no, oh, like, no. undoing mistakes <laughs> yes. and stuff like yeah. that. And so, and, and also at the time when computers are really expensive and did break, you know, the yes. green screen of death or something like that. And I mean, my, my, my generational version of it that I like to talk about is like, when I play computer games, I still have the mentality of that five-year-old kid who was given two quarters. And like, mm. when you die, you're dead. Like there's no right. more video game for you. So well, I play- Game really over. <laughs> yeah, so I, I play everything like it's the true death, right? And yes. like, I, I find it really hard to get into the mindset of, no, 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 you, you just died. Just try something else now. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that's- That's so funny you say that because I, uh, I found myself when I first, because I had played games way, way back, you know, the put a quarter in, and then I didn't do it for 20 years. And then I was playing games again. And it was exactly that same problem. I played like it was really life and death because I didn't want to die. And I watched like my daughter play and I watched other kids play who just grew up on, they just die, no big deal. And like, they're just like running and gunning into completely crazy situations. They're like, no one would ever do that in the real world. Like, what are you doing? This is so wrong. And they wouldn't die like I thought they would die and I'm like oh I see how this works and um so now there are times when I'm in a game and I'm like all right I'm going into this room and I'm going to die but I want to go look around I'm just going to stand in the middle of the room while they're all just killing me and I'm just going to look around so I know who's where and the next time I come back I'll know where everybody is and I'll take them out and I would do stuff like that and yeah it's exactly that um I uh, and and to to take that to computers when I teach people I'm like you can't break this don't worry, there's nothing you can do to break this. In fact, if you think that'll break it, do it, just do it. I promise you won't break it. Um, uh, I've helped so many people get somewhat over that fear of they don't know what to do. Like they were, uh, my neighbors a long time ago, they were afraid of the mouse. And I kept telling them, get off DOS, you gotta get on a Windows. They were doing um, tax preparation. I'm like, you gotta get out of this old technology. And so I just sat with them and said, pointed on the screen. I said, move your mouse to my finger. Okay, over here now over here and just start very slowly and work them up until they get the confidence. And, and it's a matter of knowing how to teach and knowing how to learn and knowing what the stumbling blocks are gonna be for them so that um, you can get them over those kinds of hurdles. I was gonna say, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get to your approach to teaching pretty, pretty, which you just gave us a taste of uh, when we get to talking about your book a little bit more. Um, but yeah, no, I wanted to say, yeah, that's, I, I mean, it's uh, one thing, uh, for example, when I was a kid, I thought old people wear hats, right? I, did, I, didn't, I didn't realize it's, no, it's because they wore hats when they were young, 
right? It's not that when you become old, you're going to start wearing a brimmed hat. Um, And a lot of people make that mistake about themselves too, right? They might think, oh, I'm bad at computers because I'm old. And it's like, maybe you're bad at computers because computers were bad when you first encountered them uh, and you're carrying that with you. And the the kids these days are working with things that work and are easy. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's the reason they seem less fearful than you is that they just see it as a toaster rather than a starship or something. That's a double-edged sword, by the way. So Mm. I used to call my daughter the point click generation, right? And when I sat her down to teach her programming, um, she's a programmer now, um, uh, and she's been working in the industry for about three to five years now. But when I first sat her down, she wasn't just like first year of college. Um, I said to her, look, you think this box is magic. It's not magic. It's the dumbest thing you'll ever meet. And, and she's like, she didn't understand. Um, and I said, here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna crack this old, I had an old PC. I cracked it open and I told her to touch, physically touch the computer, different areas of the computer. I wanted her to have a visceral experience base of what I meant when I said the CPU. Remember that little square thing you touched? Yeah, that's the CPU. Inside there, all the all the logic happens. And she was in the logic, so she got that. Um, and then follow this ribbon cable to the to the um, hard drive and see these slots, these these circuit boards that are in these slots. That's your memory. And I explained to her like all of those things. And and I said, you have a you're gonna like it was easy for me because I started when there was nothing, nothing, you know nothing did anything. And so I got to grow up with it. When you come into the industry now, it's very difficult because it's massive. The industry is so, there's so much that's been done. So I said to her, I said, and you come in with the wrong mindset. You're coming into this industry with the point, like I said, the point click generation is point. I remember when she was in first grade, we're sitting at dinner and she goes, she goes, dad, we have these computers in, in, our, in our classroom. And I'm like, uh-huh. She goes, she goes, they don't have a mouse. And I go, oh yeah. And she goes, how do you click? And I just started laughing. It's like, that was the, you know, she grew up with it. And like you said, toaster, I actually use that example all the time. You know, to, to my daughter, it's like a toaster. It was always in the universe. To me, it wasn't. It just came into the universe. And for people like that, where things come into their universe and it wasn't something around all the time, it can be scary. And it's no reason, there's absolutely no reason if you have the right mindset and you have the help. And, um, and so, um, yeah, trying to teach her that and try to undo that thinking. She got to a point where she's like, she's like, well, can I just tell it to do this? No, you have to, you have to do that. Well, can I just do that? No, you have to do that. She's like, oh my God, this thing's the dumbest thing on the planet. I go, exactly, now you understand. I go, this thing is dumb. It's just very fast at doing very dumb things you um very smart people have worked long thousands of man years so built on top of stuff such that you can just click a mouse and have magic happen watch a movie on your computer all of that has happened over thousands of man years of technology and work and it's a lot of smart people working very hard to make that possible but the machine hasn't really gotten smarter just before we move on to talking about your book, I've got one last thing I'd like to ask you about, and this has to do with writing. Um, so you wrote a movie. Yeah, um, yeah, it was called, a hobby. Called, called Solitary, that's actually yes. currently streaming on Amazon, Amazon Prime Video. And I was just wondering for those interested in like, how does one get script made into a movie? If you could br- briefly, I guess, I mean, I'm sure, sure it's a sure. very long story, but tell us a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, I will. I'll keep it short. Um, uh, so remember I said I got out of Hollywood 
and that that I said I could have those as hobbies. I I, I reached a, a good equilibrium there with my career and my hobbies, uh, where I <clears throat> I didn't want to. I knew I was going to get paid to do these things, um, and it, I wasn't paid enough. And it was long hours. It was if any, you talk to anybody who's worked in the gaming industry, it's a, it was the same thing in my industry where, where we worked in animation and such and technology. So I thought I'm just going to make this a hobby, and I spent probably most of my 40s at hobby time, <clears throat> excuse me, um, doing screenplays, writing screenplays, learning about filmmaking. Uh, I shot a short film with a friend of mine. Um, I was a cinematographer on that. Uh, learning about lighting, learning, I took acting classes at the, uh, at the um, um, I forget what it's called, it's, it's in Orange County, uh, Performing Arts in Orange County. Uh, I took acting classes. I read about directing, I read about editing. I pretty much just de delved completely into that. I wrote ten different screenplays, put them in, put them in um, different um, uh, contests and such. And then I'm working on a screenplay one night, and my my friend that I I met through my work in Hollywood, <clears throat> he wanted to. He said, "I'm I want to direct a film." And we he he had taken a, an idea of mine, a story of idea of mine, and done a short many years ago. And he I go okay. He goes, "I want to shoot it in my house." But I, don't, I need I need an idea, and then so we just brainstormed together, and in two hours, we had a complete story of what we wanted it to be, and um, you know that's the easy part, by the way. Um, and uh, uh, he goes, so um, do you want to work on it with me? And I said, absolutely, because <laughs> I was excited, right? So we worked on that thing for I don't know how many years. We 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 had version A, version B, version C. We went through the whole alphabet and started. AA and AB and AC and we I don't know where we wound up we had so, so many revisions of it my brother was into um uh he'd, he'd done like radio he used to he used to work on the radio and he was a DJ uh, um in clubs and he was in talent management so he was helping us market it to different production companies and there was a lot of production companies in town who wanted to buy the script but my buddy wanted to be he, he was attached as the director and they didn't want him as director because he hadn't done it. Well, that was the whole point of the exercise is to help him direct something. And, he, and we wrote it around his house, which you could, if you got enough money, you could always like make that house in the set um, or even shoot on location. But so we decided, um, okay, um, no, we said no to everyone. And um, then I went off and I shot the film with my, uh, another friend of mine who I also met in Hollywood, he's a composer. And um, we shot his film, and um, and my other buddy came to see us, our film, right? So we had a little thing where you invited a bunch of friends to watch the film. It was a 20-minute film. We he had made his 20-minute film many years ago for I don't remember how much, just tens of thousands of dollars, I think. And we had made this thing for thousands of dollars, right? It's not much at all, not counting the equipment we bought. And um, so he that pushed him over the edge to say, okay, I'm making this film. And so we shot it on the red camera. This is the days when the red camera just came out. So it's, it's in 4K and now he just, he got the rights back because it, you know, it, it went, it was international. It was made, you know, it was um, dubbed into diff many different languages. And, um, uh, and it was on TV a few times and it won a few awards on a film festival. So he took that 4K and he just remastered it. And I believe that's what you can watch on Amazon Prime. Um, so uh, yeah, that was an amazing experience. Um, and I, 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 uh, I wish I could do more of that, but it's 10 years to get to that point. And 
it's really hard. And so um, I did it. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I, I, if I had a chance to do it again, I would do it in a heartbeat. I absolutely love the, uh, I love that process. Yeah, thanks very much for that that really great story. It's um, really interesting for anyone who's thinking about doing it. There's no, um, when it comes to starting a project, there are no gatekeepers. I think people often think you need kind of like um, permission or approval, or there's only some some kind of nominated set of people that get to write screenplays and try and make movies. And it's like, no, you can do it. Um, you might want to read some screenplays before trying it and yeah, yeah, yeah. Read, read some how to write screenplay books and yeah. stuff like that. And there's lots of guidance out there that's actually really good. But there's, there's if you're interested in doing it, there's nothing stopping you. And I mean, I've not, not had the sort of experience you had, but I've written a couple myself. And like I can say, mm -hmm. it is extremely exciting and fun yes, when yes. you find yourself going down a, a coherent path for a story and then you realize you're the one that's creating it and you get to do whatever you want next. And that's, that's just kind of an intoxicating experience. Um, I, I love what you said about permission because I remember saying exactly that. I kept telling my friends like, like, you know what? I'm tired of asking permission. I don't want to ask anybody permission. Like, oh, can I do this? Or, you know, go to a production place. Oh, can we make this? And I think that's part of like, uh, I'm, I'm now into, my new hobby is music. So I figure in my 60s, I'm going to do music. And um, I'm trying to learn how to compose music. And um, uh, I, I just don't want to ask anybody's permission. I want to do what I want to do. And I, I shouldn't have to. And we should be able to make this film. And we did. Yeah, not to digress too much. But then and the, the other thing you'll encounter when you do something like that is people going, who do you think you are? You know, it's kind of Yeah, weird. and I, yeah. I, I, I turn that around to, no, you don't understand. I'm not special. Everyone can do this. The only difference is I was lucky enough to be born thinking that compared to everybody else. And that, and that, and that, and that really gets down to, it, to the book, right? And, and it's about, look, you can do this, it's, it's, but it's a lot of work, but I can make it easier for you because I've already been through it and there's no reason we should both go through the pain. Yeah, so that, that's, again, you're offering me the perfect opportunity for a segue. Uh, so I wanted to talk, and my next question was going to be about your book, uh, Functional Programming Made Easier, a step-by-step -step guide. And it really is, by the way, a step-by-step -step guide, which is something we'll talk about in a bit. But um, I was wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about what your inspiration was to write the book and who it's for. Okay, um, let's see. Um, inspiration. It, I did not want to write this book, I'll be honest. It's, it, in fact, I... I, I I uh, joked it, and I might still do this, right? I was going to write an article called uh, The Programming Book I, I Wish I Never Wrote. And I didn't want to write this book. I wanted to read this book. That was the thing. I want, because I struggled so many times to learn functional programming. I tried to learn Haskell, which is like the granddaddy of all uh, languages. Um, I program in it now, but, but I failed miserably four times. And I, it was like beating my head against the wall. And I just kept, oh, well, it's too hard, or well, it's, and I sour grape it away. And then, but I kept, I was very attracted to it, because I saw some of the power in it. And the more I tried to use like JavaScript to do um, functional things, the more I realized this language, yes, I can do functional things in it, but boy, it is so not made for this. And I would, then I thought, ah, I should get back in the Haskell and try to learn that again. And then um, I learned, um, I learned Elm, which is a very, very beginner um, and a very easy functional language. And we, we built, um, like I said, the, the, um, the it's a product called VetPro that does the claim, um, uh, allows people to fill out claims. Um, 
uh, we did, we wrote about 160,000 lines of code in Elm, but we got to a point where Elm just, we, it wouldn't scale for us. The language didn't scale for us. And so um, that's when uh, I realized that I'm gonna have to just bite the bullet. I spent three months doing nothing day and night, but and even at work, weekends, trying to learn Haskell. I bought all kinds of books. Um, I, I read tons of blog posts. Um, and here's the problem. When you don't know, and it's uh, because I grew up in this industry, uh, I don't ha I don't understand what it's like to arrive in this industry, like new programmers. What is that like? I got a taste of it, just a taste of what that's like to not know. I'm, you know, I'm like, gee, I've been doing this 36, 35 years at the time. Um, and here I can't learn a language. What is wrong with me? So I would blame the language or I'd blame the people. And to some degree, the people explaining it have a huge burden. Right. To if you tell me you can uh, you understand this and you're going to explain it to me, then the burden's on you to do that job and explain. So I put a huge burden on myself to explain it well in the book. So um, so uh, I understand when you come into and you don't know where to read. You're in tutorial, what they call tutorial hell. A lot of the new people trying to learn programming today, because uh, I kind of keep my ear to the ground on what what people are talking about trying to learn. Uh, programming and I and I and I'm I, I know exactly what they're talking about. Like I would find that at the end of the day, I'd have 20 tabs open, right, on in my browser, and I didn't I I, I was down a rabbit hole. The best way I could explain it is you're going to learn German by only reading a German dictionary. Okay, good luck. That's what it felt like. So you like would read something and you find a word you don't know and you have to look that word up and it used a bunch of words you didn't know and you have to look each of those words up and it was just a complete rabbit hole every day. It was painful and miserable. And then I could finally somehow came out the other side and um, I, I, it's a great technology. It's an amazing, I've been doing this long enough to know when something's great. It was way ahead of its time because functional programming was long before imperative programming. Um, even before my time, and um, but it was way ahead of its time, and now it's the time. Now is the time. Uh, you can see functional programming being used in every, you know, being adopted. Little pieces being adopted by lots of different um, languages. So I didn't, I didn't want to write this book, but I felt the world needed this book, and if I didn't write it, it would never have it. That was my feeling, and it got, I got to that point, and I thought I have to write it. I don't have a choice at this point. And it was two years and it was hard and it, and I was ready to come out with the book. And then the pure script compiler changed from version 13 to 14 and broke all kinds of stuff in the book. And I had to go back through the whole book, work through every one of the things and, ma and make changes to the book. Thousands of edits before I could re release it. So I was like super close to releasing it earlier in the year. And um, because I, I really don't wanna leave anybody out in the cold at all. Um, so anyway, that's yeah, I like, know. Uh, yeah, I'd like to drill into that a little bit because I mean, mm -hmm. when, when you say thousands of edits in two years, uh, for those listening, the book is 1900 pages long or so in yeah. the PDF, and yes. it is very long, but there's a, there's actually a very straightforward reason for that that has to do with your approach to teaching, which is that you actually show the coding of the product line by line and you explain yes. every decision. And 
I really like that. And like, uh, you, you actually wrote, I'm going to be mixing up your book a little bit with the uh, recent medium post you wrote called how to write a programming book. Oh yeah. yeah um, cool. But like, I couldn't, I can't tell you how much I agreed with everything I was reading that you were saying about oh, the, the common mistakes that people make. And I think mm -hmm. I also share your sense of natural irritation when people do this kind of thing. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, I mean, so one, one example I use is not books, but um, uh, like kind of like it's a one stack overflow is a wonderful thing. Right. But Yes. The, first, the first, the first answer to any question on Stack Overflow is, why would you want to do that in the first place? And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what garden those assholes are grown in, and how they're always sure. the first one to to respond. But like, dude, guy's not asking for, he's not, he's just asking a question. Yes, uh, help and, him and, out here. <laughs> and the second, yeah. and my joke is, the second person who answers will go, oh, you just screef the new bar. And then right, and now you don't know what, exactly. And then you have a line, and I think it was in your post where you say, this is the equivalent of you asking me what a nap-nap is, and I explain that it's a moople that comes in three colors, red, green, and blue, and that it humbats with its mouth, except for the green ones. And it's like, right. it's a much better example, much more elaborate <laughs> and better explained example than mine, but like, because you're talking about introducing children to the idea of what a dog is. Right. Uh, but, but the idea that you have of, of having to go step-by-step step and empathizing mm -hmm. with people who are new to something that you're familiar with and actually how, like it's easy to make fun, but actually how really hard it is to get into the mindset of someone who's new and also how, how just hard it is to really stick to doing something step-by-step. Step. Um, I interviewed someone recently named Eric Mathis who wrote a very popular book. I think it's the best-selling Python programming book. Okay. And it took him a very long time, but it was the same. It, was, it strikes me as he had the same attitude as you had towards it, that mm -hmm. like, you can't skip a step. And that's easier said than done. Boy, I'll, you, you're, you're 100% right. I, I remember as I'm getting towards, you know, the, the latter part of the book, because the first half of the book, the first 900 pages, um, give or take, is like, the, not theory, but the concepts. Okay. And the second 900 pages is just getting down to doing real things with the language and seeing how they work in, in real situations. And um, when I, I mean, I was in that second half of the book and so many times I wanted to skip, right? I, because I, I'm fatigued and I just didn't let myself off the hook. I'm like, nope, nope, this book, I want this book to be no skipping the whole way through, the whole way through. Now, what I did do, because the functions get larger is I would redact code above a certain point because we're not working on that part in so that I just didn't bloat the book even more. But my thinking was, is this is how I write code, right? I sit and I think about it. I think, what am I gonna do? And I think I my, make my strategy and then I start coding and I write one line. So where do I start? I write this line first. And then what do I do next? I think for a second. And then what do I do next? I write the next line, maybe half a line. Right, uh, or maybe I start writing a line. And I realize, ah, wait, hold on, I don't know what I'm doing here. Or oh, I got to look something up. I basically tried to simulate that process throughout the complete book. What is it like? I left mistakes, right? I made I, I would code something for the book because I, I sit and I code it first and then I work through it, and I'd make a mistake and I'm like, oh no, that's good. I'm leaving that in, because that's the way real life is. What I never like is in, uh, in all books, it's all, you're reading a book and all of a sudden it's like, all right, and this is how you do it. Boom, this perfectly formed answer, this massively complicated function, and it's like magic. And you think this guy's a genius and I'm an idiot because look, he wrote this and I can't understand any of it. However, he didn't just 
write it whole cloth, right? He went exactly the way I'm doing it. And, you know, he thought about it. He wrote a line. He made a lot of mistakes. He had a lot of compiler errors. He fixed all those things. And then he gives you the end product in there. And that's the problem with, a, in my opinion, with a, a ton of books. You don't get to see all the mistakes that everybody made. You don't get to see the the, the blind alleys and the, it's that whole thing about you, um, uh, when how you judge yourself against the, the world, right? They say, well, you're seeing their highlight reel, but then you're seeing behind the scenes in your life, right? That's the thing. I give you the behind the scenes. I show you all the mistakes I make, bad decisions I made as I was going, as I'm writing the book. I didn't pre-guess anything. I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to do this thing. And if I made a bad decision, I'm like, uh-oh, this is a problem. And I'll ask the reader, can you see my mistake? Because it is my mistake. I'm the teacher here. It's my mistake that I made. And then we fix it together because this is a mistake that I made. Now, some of those I put in on purpose, but, but mostly no. These are, a lot of these were um, you know, just little, things you, little mistakes you make along the way. You literally get to look at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of compiler errors. Um, I, I, I snapshotted all, you know, all, most of them. Towards the end, I, I did less and less of that because at that point, you know, you, you got it. It's just, you've seen this one a million times already. So, but that's what it's like. And so I'm like, how can I simulate if I sat down with you and we coded together, we pair programmed and I, and I asked you questions like, okay, what are we gonna do now? Or what are you thinking? What would your approach be? All of those things. I, um, in a, how can I simulate that in a book? And that was, and that's why there are so many pages. Also going back to my screenwriting, people who read your screenplays when you're trying to sell them, they don't want to read a lot. I mean, if you remember Martin Short in The Player, he's like, uh, he points to like a pile of scripts on his desk. He says, see these screenplays? I've read almost all, I've read almost all of them almost all the way through, right? And that's a huge joke in the industry because nobody wants to read your stuff. So if you have, um, if you have description, not dialogue, if you have description and that description is important, you better not make that description too, uh, uh, too much like what I call it, like a paragraph that looks like you're eating a brick to read, right? Um, you better not have that, otherwise they'll skip right over it. And they'll miss a bunch of stuff that happens in the story because they're just jumping to the dialogue. And that happens with readers all the time. And I, so what I did is I, I would put, I, I was very careful about putting very, very little, and then I have a paragraph break. And it's almost crazy. Sometimes just one sentence, paragraph break, one sentence, paragraph break. I did the same thing in the book because the problem with technical material is you need time to breathe. But we were taught in school to read the paragraph and then think, right? And we tend to do that. So I, um, so I, I, I give you time to take little baby bites and then chew, and then another baby bite and then chew. So. Um, there's a lot of white space in the book in that way, and it, I always find it easier to um, absorb stuff when I when people do that. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't I didn't really think that sort of writing movies and writing programming books and even programming would would uh, sort of be so nicely enmeshed in our conversation. But I'm really <laughs> I'm really enjoying it. Um, you're reminding me of something called the log line uh, that you're supposed to yes. come up with when you make a movie, which is like yes. literally one sentence. It shouldn't be yes. too many words. It's kind of like if Steven Spielberg were standing in front of you and you had like 10 words to catch his attention, what would you say? And I think there's actually like a huge running joke about that in the player, which I haven't seen in yes. a long time. Yeah, but, there um, is. It's kind of like, it's kind of like Die Hard, but on a boat, you know, or, or, <laughs> or uh one one i wrote that's the pitch that's the pitch right yeah, yeah. one one i wrote a long time ago was uh it's deadwood after the zombie apocalypse 
yeah, cool. <laughs> things like that when you want, you, but the thing is, it's, it's funny, but the thing is like the short punchy thing can actually take you a really long time to get. And again, it's one of those things where you can get impatient, right? Like, but actually mm-hmm. putting in the detail, doing the revisions, things like that. And you're, you're actually reminding me of a movie example that I've used before, a movie lore example that I've used before on the podcast to explain exactly what I dislike about poorly explained things. And it's mm-hmm. um, the old, uh, well, Quentin Tarantino was just working at a, at a movie rental store, if for anyone uh, knows what those were. And then he was yep. a famous director. And I was like, right. I was always very frustrated by that type of yeah. explanation. And then I once came across an interview with Quentin Tarantino where he's like, no, here's what happened. And it, I'll get it wrong a little bit, but it was, he goes, no, my friend at the video store, his girlfriend worked out with Harvey Keitel's girlfriend at the time. So mm. I gave the screenplay for Reservoir Dogs to my friend who gave it, who gave it to his girlfriend, who took it to the gym, who You're gave right. it to her friend and who gave it to Harvey Keitel. And then one day I got, like, I'm getting it wrong, but it was kind of like actually understanding that chain is so important for really getting done what you want to do. Uh, and it, like, I just can't exaggerate enough how important it is that, that any little gap in that story, and it would be impossible to, to replicate what it actually yeah. and then with programming with as you say computers are actually quite dumb you you get one one thing wrong you miss one thing in your book and you get it out there and everybody who gets to that point is like stuck and has to throw away the book if you don't get it right kind of. yeah and that that was one thing that i i you know i joke about martin short's line in the player um i i i could point to a whole slew of books that I've read almost all the way through because I either get to the point where I'm like okay I, this isn't working right I'm not I'm not this is this book isn't working for me um, or I get it you don't have to keep beating a dead horse so it, it there's a there is a balance there's a balance there I worked with a guy for 20 years um, uh, we moved from company to company I always dragged him along and um, uh, we had two different ways of looking at a book right he would we would buy the same books we were both book people and we would buy the books and we would learn, try to learn from them. And if he couldn't learn from the book, he would blame himself. He goes, well, I'm just too stupid to, to understand this. And when I read the book and couldn't understand it, I thought that the author did, I blamed the author. I didn't blame me. I thought the author blew it, right? The author didn't do their job. And I'm really hard on authors because of that. Um, and I was hard on myself and I still am. I held myself to a very high standard of, look, you, you're, you're saying to the world, hey world, I know this information and I can explain it to you so that you can also know it, okay? Right. Well, it's your job as the author to then make sure that you do that job, right? That I, I, the person has to meet you halfway, obviously, but they wouldn't be wasting their time reading the words you put on paper if they didn't want the information, right? So it's the, the, the burden is really on me, the teacher or the author of a book to make sure that I've done absolutely everything I possibly can so that you can un- that you can learn what I'm trying to say. That's why I did the white space. That, that's why I go into, um, like there's a lot of math notation that you'll see, you'll come up against. Um, not a lot in the book, but, but you know, there's some um, and you, in, in, in programming. And so you, you might bump into it. And then it just seems like, remember I talked about hieroglyphics in C when I first saw C? Well, it appears to be hieroglyphics uh, when you look at math in many ways. And my daughter has math phobia. And um, even though she completely aced her logic uh, class in college, which is one of the hardest classes on campus, she said, and um, 
uh, but she doesn't see that as math. And, um, and people have this math phobia. So I wanted to make sure that any math symbols I use, I completely explain. I assume you don't know what a stack is. I assume you've never thought about binary numbers. So when I talk about these things and, they, and, and they're just brief, I actually spend time explaining to her how a stack works. I'm not just gonna assume you know it. I, I assume you don't know, you know programming. It's, so you asked me earlier, who is it for? I, it, I imagine this, this fictitious uh, programmer who's been in the industry for two years and um, has done some real work and they want, to, they want to, um, to learn about functional programming. That's it, that's it, that's the, no more than that. Now, I also say in the intro that that doesn't mean students can't learn from this book. I mean, it's just, it's just a shortcoming of my imagination, right? That I, I, it's hard for me to go back to that person because it's been so many years since I've been there. But, but I, 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 I have a, an experience with people who are, you know, just starting off in their career and been working in this business for a little bit. So uh, it's just my, my lack of imagination, not yours. And so that I, I think students could learn from this as well. I, I almost think, wish I'd have started here learning, um, learning programming because, you know, I spent so many years um, struggling with um, uh, inferior technology for uh, writing code. Actually, speaking of technology for writing, uh, the third time's uh, the charmer. Well, no, no, that's not the right phrase, but it, quite the opposite. You've given me a third awesome segue, uh, which is okay. to talk about the, 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 what we say for the end of the interview is talking about the, actually the technical tools that you use for writing and your process and things like that. Uh, and, you know, a lot of lean pub authors are uh, people who are writing programming books and things like that. So they actually really like to hear from other people what their process was. And so okay. um, you, you used our... Um, bring your own book writing mode, which is where you yes. just use your own tools, the ones you love or the ones you hate the least uh, and yes. you're, you're best at to, to write your book and then you upload the file when you're, when you're, when you're ready. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what like actual like app or tools you used to uh, write the book. Okay, so I used VS Code as my editor. Uh, I used ASCII doc uh, as the format. And I, I basically, when I decided to write the book, I spent a month just getting the tools figured out. Like what tools did I wanna do? What was my workflow? How do I build the book? Uh, there's, for me, if you look at the book, it, it, it is a lot of pages, but I wanted the font to be big, right? Tiny font gets tiring. And if you're trying to understand something, the last thing you need is to struggle with a small font. So I wanted the font to be big. I wanted it to be somewhat colorful. It was aesthetics. The page had to have an aesthetic to me. And so I spent about a month trying to tweak ASCII doc with styling and, and other things to get it just right. But the one, the number one thing about ASCII doc that is um, blows Markdown out of the water is callouts. You can have, and I have them all throughout the book. When I add code to every, as we're coding line by line, as I add code, I'll put callouts to the lines uh, of code that, um, uh, that have certain, um, you know, I want to point out. And then underneath it, it's like a, a local footnote, if you will, these little callouts. So a call is just a little circle, uh, color circle with a number in it, um, in the, where the code is. And then right below the code, you'll see like, so it'll be like number one and number two will be in the code. And then one and two are like footnotes right below the code and you can read things. And I want to, there's things about that line of code I want to talk about. Um, many times it's just like, oh, I just added this import to import this, or I added this to bring in the data constructors or just little notes like that. Oh, okay. 
And being able to have those call outs um, it was amazing. Um, I've never, I've never seen that in, I've never seen it in a book, um, but it, it really, it, it really, it's really hard when you're trying to describe something that you can't point to. And the calls let you point to the very thing you're trying to describe without having to repeat that thing. So I thought that that one hands down for me. And um, so, yeah, that, that was the, the tech. And when you're working with a book that size or when it gets to that size, um, did you, when you, I'm presumably since the aesthetic and things were important to you, um, you were exporting versions of the PDF probably relatively frequently. Um, and no, I just checked it into GitLab. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so I, I just used the free GitLab um, uh, account and I just, I just push it via Git, just the same way I write code, right? I mean, I, most people do this today. They just check it in the source control and that's what I did because it's just, they're just text files. And did you um, set certain times of day that you then maybe communicated with your family about, you know, like it's going to be like from from nine to 10 every night, I'm going to be working on my book or anything like that? No, no, I just, I, I, I so many times I would just, it would be early in the morning, I come downstairs, uh, I would, I would write and um, usually I cook bacon in the oven and I would write or I would write, I just lock myself in my office and I would write there. It, it was just a constant, always trying to get time to write. And um, like I said, towards the end, it was, became really, really difficult because you're fatigued, right? I had really laid out the curriculum for people I was teaching at work uh, the first year. And then I, when I decided to turn it into a book, I had that, I had that curriculum, but it, it, it was just okay, right? The, the book is far, far better. So I had a bunch of slides I was teaching people at work with. And as my writing surpassed my slides, I threw my slides away. And I just said, we're going to work right out of the book. And um, because it was so much better. And um, so it was just constantly writing as much as I could. I'm pretty disciplined. So um, that helps. I mean, honestly, discipline in my mind is the, if you want to be successful at anything, and I don't mean financially successful, I mean, you've accomplished something that you value, you've produced something of value, something you value, and hopefully others do. Um, you, you, discipline is it. Everything starts with discipline. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a life. It doesn't mean that, you know, that you have to give up everything. I'm not into the, this grind culture kind of way of thinking. I was when I was younger and before it was even called that. And it is, it's a mistake. You really burn out. I, I, I worked 20 hours on and 10 hours off uh, with no time off when I was working in animation um, for, for months um, with zero days off. Um, just the wrong approach. But being disciplined enough such that it becomes uh, something you do when you have the time, um, that's 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 the trick. And if you're just consistent, don't worry about the deadline. Just 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 keep doing it. And um, what was the reason you chose to self-publish the book? And uh, why did you choose LeanPub as at least one of the platforms you're going to be selling it on? Um, it, you're actually the only platform I'm planning on selling it on. Um, I bought books from you guys, and and I, I liked I liked that you could have a slider, right? And people who couldn't afford it could slide the price down. I thought that was really great. I wanted this book to be available. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, we're lucky we grew up in this country. We were born in this country. And I knew there were people, uh, you know, like in India who would love this and maybe they couldn't afford the, the normal price. And I thought, you know, 
I, I mean, to me, I would have paid $150 for this book five years ago. So if I, if I went back in time to, and gave myself this book and I said, it costs you 150 bucks, I would have bought this book because it would have saved me so much pain. So the book is highly valuable to me, the guy, the poor slob who had to write it, right? But, but, and it may be highly valuable to others, but they don't have the means. So I thought that was really cool. So I could allow people to slide it down. Um, I, uh, somebody, uh, you know, you can give coupons. I thought that was really great. Um, uh, I, I, I didn't know that until I self-published. I just had bought books from you guys and I liked the way you, you, you did things. It wasn't until I actually put my own book up that I realized, wow, th there is so much that like everything I could think of that I might want to do or might want to, it's like there. And now when you're just a buyer of a book, you don't have any idea, but I was really impressed with like, oh, I want to give somebody a coupon. Oh, that exists. You have that. Um, oh, I'd like to know this information. Oh, boom, it's there. Oh, I'd like to be able to update the, everything seems to be there. Everything I've looked for so far is just there. So I, um, so the post um, experience was, um, was surprising, um, the level of quality of the website and um, the services that are there for you as an author, I, I think are great. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much for that. I can say the credit, the credit for um, all those awesome features goes to mm -hmm. Lean, Lean Pub authors themselves. Um, Lean Pub, you know, much of much of what's there is uh, there because of us, you know, talking with authors over the years and them running into yeah. warning into walls and saying, how can we break this one down and you know, running into rivers and saying, how can we build a bridge <laughs> over it and things like what yes. do you want to use? But but a lot yeah. of those things are there because an author's like, hey, you know, what would be really great would be this. And actually the last, the last question I always ask on this podcast, if the guest is, is, has published a book on LeanPub is um, if there was one thing that you encountered that really bugged you on LeanPub, or if there was one magic feature we could build for you, is there anything you can think of that you would ask us to do? Um, I mean, I would say not really. I mean, uh, I mean, I can nitpick things like when I had to put the table of contents up, there was that you, you guys really, I really appreciate it too. You have this big paragraph that explains everything. And um, it's just not good and not, I don't have enough control over the formatting of the table of contents. Uh, I think maybe a PDF, I could have just pulled out of the book and if I could put a, upload a PDF and then you could just see that instead of me having to do HTML and then you guys filter the HTML so that we don't have any garbage um, tags in there or try to put some, uh, script things in there that filtering mucks with your um, formatting. So if I could just take a PDF and do my table of contents and then upload that, and there's the, you could just display the PDF or something like that. Um, I think that was the only the one little thing that I encountered. Everything else so far has been um, pretty pretty stellar. Yeah, that's super interesting. If I can just explain that, so um, you know, uh, sort of um, OG LeanPub has various writing modes where you write in our our, our you know plain text. Uh, markup, you know, which is, you know, a variant of markdown called Markua. And when you click up, when you, you write in plain text and you click a button to, to publish a version or preview a version or something. And then what we can do is we can, we all, we automatically generate the table of contents in your book, but we can also, mm. we can also automatically generate a table of contents on your book's web page on LeanPub where you're trying to sell it to people. Right. Uh, and, and having the table of contents there is very helpful. So when we later uh, created their bring your own book format, which is like, why are we telling all authors you can't use LeanPub unless you use our workflow? Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, 
let's let's have something so they can use their own workflow and then still take advantage of all the other features that we offer. But that left us with this dilemma, right? Because we can't yeah. auto-generate the table of contents. So what are we going to do? And we did two very lean pubby things. And I'm not, these are not, that's not a self-congratulatory thing that I'm saying. One was sure. the, the, the wall of text, as we call it. Um, yeah. which is yeah, a yeah. long explanations that you, <laughs> right. if you hunt around on LeanPub as an author, you'll find these in various places. But what we did was we said, okay, well, let's give people the ability to just write their table of contents or their web page on LeanPub in HTML. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, your suggestion that we actually just give people the opportunity to, we've already given them the opportunity in that writing mode to upload a whole book and a sample yes. and a yes. cover image. So why not also give them the ability to upload an image or a PDF or what, what have you of the table of contents and display that instead? I mean, I can't make any guarantees that we're gonna do it, but like that's actually a really excellent suggestion and would solve the problem, especially for people who are like, you know, I mean, even you're highly technical and like there's things I can't do, you know, um, for people who mm -hmm. are like, you will see in the wording where it's like, you know, if you don't know what HTML is, you know, you can just ignore this, but that means you can't put up your table of contents unless you right. do it in the about the book section or some other workaround. So being able to use an image there is actually a really good idea. And I'll make sure to share that. Okay. Uh, There's one other thing now that, that, that I, but I, not something I've experienced, but, but you have your own markdown language, right? You should look at the call outs for, um, since you have a lot of technical books and you have, probably have a lot of authors who are doing code, Right. Um, I can't tell you how, how that is the only, number one reason I used ASCII doc. Um, it was a pain, honestly. Um, uh, I put up with all of its warts just to get that one feature. And, and, um, and it's, it's an incredible feature. So uh, the call outs, like I said, if you could add that to your markdown, I might have thought to use the uh, Loom Pub approach. Okay, well, I'll definitely note that to the team too, and I'll, I'll you know, I can obviously I can share a screenshot from your book showing exactly, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. what and you're talking it's about. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful feature. It is really an amazing feature. I mean, you can it does some other nicety. It has some other niceties, but it is the it was the winning feature for um, for, for for if you're writing a book in pro, for, as a programmer and you want to talk about code uh, line by line or um, you want to or multiple lines of a block of code, it's amazing. So that, that would be cool that you're asking. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Charles, thank you very much for sharing your story and uh, the, the, you know, your approach to teaching and your approach to writing and everything, about, uh, everything else about that. And uh, yeah, for anyone listening, the book is Functional Programming Made Easier, a step-by-step -step guide. If you th think it's right for you, uh, you know, please go check it out. It's a really great book and it really does deliver on uh, you know, the principles that Charles tried to uh, implement when, when he wrote it and produced it. So thanks very much for being on the Front Matter Podcast. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.